Why would you keep a secret? Why would you keep a secret? There are probably a few reasons you can think of. Uh, maybe you just don't want anyone else to find out because it's a surprise. Right? You have a surprise party, you can't tell the person, they wouldn't be surprised. Maybe you're trying to hide something from other people that would change how they think about you or their opinion of you, so you just don't want it to get out, you don't want people to know, right? Maybe you're the CIA and you don't want to let your secrets out because it's a national security threat or other nefarious reasons, right? Sometimes you don't tell someone information because they don't have all the information, they might misunderstand what you're saying, so it's uh, you just think it's better not to just bring it up at all, right? We get in those situations sometimes as parents, right? We don't tell all the details about all the decisions we're making because, well, our kids don't know all the things that go into it. They don't know all the factors, so sometimes it's better just not to <laughs> not to talk about it much, right? Well, we've seen in the book of Matthew, we've seen a few times where Jesus has told people basically to keep a secret. He's told people, don't tell everybody who I am, right? He's healed someone. He's told them, don't, don't make a big show about it. Don't go off and tell everyone that I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the Lord. We saw that at the end of our passage last week as well. After Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, and so that seems, well, it seems totally backwards to the mission of Jesus, right? He's here to spread the good news about himself, that he's come to save people from their sins. Why would he tell people, especially the disciples here, to not tell anyone else about him? Well, we see in this passage really a little bit of why. We get this background, we get this understanding why Jesus would have done this. Why did he not want this spread about him, at least not yet? And it's because that the disciples themselves, let alone the other people, didn't really fully yet understand what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. They didn't fully understand yet what all that included, what he had come to do, when he was here on earth. And so Jesus in this passage starts to make that clear to the disciples. He starts to tell them, this is why I have come. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 in verses 21 through 28. That is our passage this morning. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. And the word of the Lord says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But if whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father God, we pray that you will open our eyes to see the truth of your word, that we would uh, see more of your glory and be changed to be more like you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, here in this passage, tells the disciples that the Messiah has come to die. We've seen this, like I said, a few times show up in the book. Jesus has kind of hinted at this idea, but here he's telling them plainly. I have come, I am the Christ, you are correct, but I have come not to reign on a throne, but to come and die. And so this is where the disciples really start to grasp what Jesus is saying. He's speaking clearly to them. We see this in the Old Testament as well. This is not a new idea per se, but it's an idea that wasn't really on people's minds. They had thought of the Messiah as the coming king. They hadn't tied these Old Testament prophecies to the Messiah. They thought, yes, a servant of God would come and suffer, but that wasn't the same necessarily as the, the Messiah who was coming. So we read this morning Isaiah 53 that speaks of a suffering servant. We read in Zechariah 12 about the people looking on him whom they have pierced. And it talks about a king in that same passage. And of course, we have Psalms that talk about suffering and a suffering king, a suffering servant. But these pieces, all these pieces hadn't really been put together yet. At least at this point, that's not what was on their minds. And so Jesus, Jesus puts it together for the disciples plainly. I am the Christ and I have come to die. This is where I'm headed. This is where I'm going. Jesus also says, he, he also tells them he's going to be raised from the dead, but it's almost as if the disciples either don't understand that yet or they're just so shocked by the fact that Jesus just said he's going to die that that just, they're in a fog after that. They don't really hear anything after that, right? They, they view Jesus as this conqueror who's going to come and defeat the enemies. And so if Jesus is going to defeat enemies, how can he die. That seems like they're defeating him. That doesn't make any sense to them. That's not what they were expecting. And that's really what this comes down to. It's, it's uh, not what they were expecting. And we can understand that. You've probably been in a situation where things haven't lived up to your expectations, right? Uh, sometimes, this is just a simple example, but sometimes you go to the grocery store and they come out with new products all the time, right? And so you walk down the Maybe you're going to get chips for the Super Bowl. You walk down the aisle and there are Oreos, right? They're close. And you're like, oh, they have this new flavor of Oreo. I don't know if they come out with it yet, but I heard they're doing a chocolate, vanilla, chocolate sandwich inside the Oreo cookie. So if you like Oreos, maybe you'll try it. But you see, hey, they've got this new flavor, right? And um, 
I wasn't really planning on buying Oreos. It's not on my list, but you impulse buy it because you want to try it. You want to see if it's good, right? And then you get home, you open up the sleeve of Oreos, and you eat it, and it's just okay, right? It's not bad. It's an Oreo, but it's not everything. It's not the most amazing cookie you've ever had, right? So it just doesn't live up to your expectation. Maybe you have buyer's remorse. Maybe I shouldn't have spent that extra few dollars on this, right? But we, we go through that all the time. That's just a simple example. But in this situation with the disciples, you could take that kind of little disappointment that we go through in life and lots of things, and you could multiply that by at least 100. Because this wasn't just an expectation that was just off the cuff. Oh, they just started thinking about Jesus and him being king. They just started to get their imagination going of what it would mean that Jesus is the king. He's come to conquer. No, they, the people had thought about the Messiah coming for years, for decades, for generations. They were expecting it. They had been under the rule of other nations, and they were waiting for a king to come. And here comes Jesus, and they are really hopeful. They have these great expectations about what he's going to do. And then, with these high expectations, with all this hype around what Jesus is going to be, then Jesus essentially comes and dashes their hopes and expectations and says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not overthrowing Rome. I'm not setting the country free from every other country. No, I have come to die. And so their, their hopes, their expectations, their dreams, they're all, they're all dashed at this point, right? The higher expectation, the, the more the heartbreak is. It's kind of a principle. We see that in the Proverbs as well, right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's how the Proverbs put it. And so Peter here, he hears Jesus talking about dying. And he decides to make another declaration to Jesus, right? He's just made the declaration, Jesus, you are the Christ. And now Jesus is talking in this way and he's saying, wait, that's not what the Christ does. And so he decides to make another declaration to Jesus about who the Christ is. He says, Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. You're the Christ. You will not die. This is not what the Christ does. Um, it seems pretty obvious to us. But whenever we read that Jesus rebuked, or Peter rebuked Jesus, that usually tips us off that, hey, Peter's probably not doing the right thing here. <laughs> it's probably not a good idea. If you disagree with God on something, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, you're probably in the wrong in that situation, right? That's easy to us in hindsight, right? It's easy to us as we read this to see that Peter's wrong. But really, this shows us the power of those expectations, right? That he had built this up so much. He had these great expectations, these hopes, these dreams. And then when that changes, uh, it affects us, right? We, we have these hopes that we might, uh, we might get married. We might have a family. We have these hopes that we'll have health or we'll have success or we'll, you know, the Olympics are going on. We'll be an Olympic athlete one day. Um, we have all these great hopes and dreams and expectations. And then when those things don't happen, right, it affects us. We, we can easily get depressed or sad or angry when those things don't happen. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about Ruth and Naomi, how Naomi got bitter because of all the things uh, that had happened to her. The famine, moving away, her husband died, her sons died, right? All of this happened, or this hand that got dealt to her. 
and she was bitter. She was angry. Uh, it wasn't what she was hoping for, expecting. This is why in the Psalms we, we read the psalmist having to preach to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Right? He's reminding himself, he's preaching to himself that the center of our hopes can't be any of our expectations or our definitions of what we think should happen or what we think the good life would be for ourselves. But our hope, our trust must be rooted in God's truth, in his definitions, his expectations, his promises. Because otherwise, we'll be tossed to and fro with the rising and falling of our expectations and hopes. And Peter was hoping in a Messiah. He was hoping in a Messiah that would do a certain thing, that would come and conquer. And he wasn't completely wrong in that. right? That wasn't a bad thing. That was partly true, but it was missing key information, and that led him to to go against the will of God because he set his expectations and hopes above what God's will and God's plan was. And so whenever we have our hopes and dreams dashed, we are prone to the same temptation to, to be angry, to, to be depressed, to, to say that God got it wrong, to go against the will of God and want something different. And Jesus hears Peter say this. He knows that this is really what Peter's doing. He's opposing the will of God. And so Peter, Jesus turns to him and he says, Get behind me, Satan. Right? These are strong words. Very strong words. Uh, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of these expectations. It's about Peter, what was good for him, what was good for the people, not what God was doing in the moment, right? Peter's the one, Jesus just said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He just made this promise. And here Peter is not living like that. In fact, he's not uh, being this rock that Jesus builds the church on. He's being a stumbling block, a rock that's in the way. That's the play on words here. Uh, that he's a hindrance. That word hindrance is really the same word for stumbling block. So Jesus is really making another declaration about Peter. You're, now you're not a rock I'm building on. You're a rock that's getting in the way of what God wants, what God's will is. And so from 10 verses, Peter goes from the highest of high of being blessed by Jesus to the lowest of low, being rebuked and saying, you're doing the will of Satan and not the will of God. And when you hinder the will of God, when you stand against his will, when you set your mind on the things of man instead of the things of God, you're doing the work of Satan. That's what this passage is saying to us. We remember in Matthew 4, this was one of the temptations, right? Jesus was tempted by Satan to not do it God's way. You can get the kingdom. The kingdom will be yours if you'll just bow down to me. I'll give you the whole earth. And uh, Jesus, in that situation, rebuked the devil as well, just like he rebukes Peter here. But that's, that's that heart that he's seeking. Peter is seeking not the things of God, but what's good for him. He's focused on himself. You know, there's a phrase, you've heard it, I know, 
that you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. I don't know if you've thought about that phrase. I really don't like that phrase. <laughs> um, I don't think that phrase is accurate at all. I think if you're not earthly good, then you're not heavenly minded enough. Because to be heavenly minded uh, means you will be earthly good. You will be, if you're loving God, you will be loving other people. And that will flow out of you and will be displayed. So I don't think it's true that if we're so heavenly minded, we'll be of no earthly good. And yet it is possible to be so earthly minded that we're of no heavenly good. We can set our mind on the things of man so much that we're not being used by God. In fact, we're actually hindering his will and what he is doing in the world. And in this passage, we could, we could probably fill in the blank of all the things that we can set our minds on that are the things of man. But in this passage, we actually see one specific example, uh, an example like, remember the parable of the weeds and the soil, how the, the weeds choked out the the fruit, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, they choked it out. In this passage, we see an example of what that looks like. We see that Peter, right after he's rebuked by Jesus, then Jesus turns and he tells the disciples something. Right? You notice the word then, the verse of 24 at the beginning. We're, we're meant to connect these passages. Peter, Jesus rebukes Peter, says, you're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, you're setting your mind on the things of man. And then Jesus makes a statement saying, if you want to be a disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is really the opposite of that mindset that centers on ourselves, setting our mind on the things of man. Jesus rebukes Peter. You could say that, really, he's summarizing in this passage that the one who sets their mind on the things of man is someone who's holding on to the things of the world who is following themselves instead of following the things of God, holding on to their own desires instead of the things of God, right? That's not what we are meant to do. We see this as we see this man who will gain the whole world and yet lose his soul, who would save his life but ends up losing it. The focus is inward. The focus is on me. How can I get ahead? How can I... Uh, live that good life, so to speak, but in pursuing those things, we actually end up losing our lives. We end up losing our souls. We're, we're not following God. And we've seen this really since the beginning. This has been the great lie that Adam and Eve in the garden until today, we follow this deception that when we follow what we want and what we think is good, that we will get it and that that is what we really need. Right? We, we know what the good life is meant to be, and we know how to get it, and we can get it. And sometimes we do get what we want, but then we understand that that's not really what living is like. And so when we pursue our own gain, it's, it's really like in the Middle Ages when they thought that the, the earth was the center of the universe. Right Before Copernicus, right, who had said, gone against the trend and said, no, the sun, or, sun is the center of the universe, right? They were earth-centric. They thought everything revolved around the earth. Well, that's really what this mindset of the things of man is. It's like thinking everything revolves around me. What is good for me? What does 
what's best for me? How does what they're doing going to affect me? Right? It's all about me. But instead, God says that that's not going to satisfy, that that's actually going to implode on yourself. You're going to lose your life when everything's centered around you. Instead, he says something different. He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. So opposite than uh, follow your heart or other phrases we hear in the culture, right? This Jesus is telling us, Truly following God means denying yourself. So what does that mean? We need to think about this phrase. What does it mean to deny yourself? Does it mean anything I think or want I shouldn't do? I don't know. I'll have to, you know, it's like everyone says it's not financial advice, and then they talk about financial advice, but they have to put the caveat in because they don't know your specific situation. right? It depends what you're wanting, what you're desiring. But here in this passage, we see this word denying yourself. And that phrase, we don't have to guess at it. It's used somewhere else in the Bible. In 2 Timothy 2.13, in fact, the only other place this phrase denying yourself is used in the Bible is used there. And it talks about God not denying himself. Right? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so God can't deny himself. He can't go against what comes natural to him, what his character is like, what his personality is, right? It's at the core of who he is. He can't go against it. But us denying ourselves on the flip side would then mean, well, we have personality and preferences and interests and self-preservation instincts. And God calls us to go against those in order to follow him. So... Here's an example. Sometimes we like to split up personality traits into introverts and extroverts. Uh, you might call yourself an introvert. You might call yourself an extrovert. Uh, either way, it doesn't matter. It works both ways. But let's say you're, you're an introvert. Naturally, that means you would like just a nice, quiet evening at home instead of going out and talking to a bunch of people. You get worn out after making phone calls because you're just... Hey, you're spent, you've, you've hit your quota of talking, you're done for the day, you need some rest. Right? Well, the Bible says uh, that we're supposed to love others. We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves, give to others, do what's good for others. Sometimes that means our personality is wrong. Our introverted personality is wrong sometimes. Because it's not in line with following the will of God. It gets in the way, in other words, of actually loving others, of actually sacrificing ourselves and doing what's good, of taking up our cross and following the Lord. Works the same for extroverts as well. Sometimes instead of saying something, <laughs> you need to not say something. right? You can do it both ways. But sometimes there are things in our personality that get in the way of following the will of God. And that's really what this denying ourselves is talking about. When we come up against things that we like or we have preferences for and they don't line up with what God commands, what God wants, God calls us to sacrifice ourselves in that moment, to take up our cross and to follow him, follow his will. Not think about ourselves and what we want, but think about what God wants, what his will is in those moments. That's what Jesus did. He came as the Messiah. He came as the King. He came above everyone else, and yet he laid down his life for his sheep. He wasn't thinking about his own interests, 
But he was also thinking about the interests of others, what was good for them. How can I serve them? How can I serve God and follow his will? Right? He prayed, not my will, but yours be done in the garden. And so Jesus shows us through his life what it means to follow the will of God to lay down himself. He shows us through his life and death that that's not just all that he's saying here. Right? He doesn't just say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But he shows us that sacrificing yourself, that laying down your life actually leads to life. Right? Don't miss that part. He's not just saying you should, you should sacrifice everything you like and then you'll be miserable and that's really what you should do in life. Right? No, he, he connects this to a promise that this is the good life, so to speak. If you lose your life, you will find it. If you lay down your life, you will find it. And so in Jesus' life, we see that as well. We see that he was sacrificing himself through his life. He was serving others. He died on the cross. And then when he was raised, God exalted him. Above all else, he, he raised him up. And so we see this similarity, this uh, the sameness between how God works with Jesus and how he works with us. When we lay down our lives here, when we serve others, we know that that's not in vain, that that's not... Uh, going to go without notice, that God sees that. He rewards that. That's why Jesus here talks about these rewards in verse 27. He tells us, he points us to the rewards to do two things. He tells us, listen, if you focus on yourselves, well, you're going to be judged for that. So don't do that. That's one side of it. But on the flip side, he says, if you deny yourself, if you sacrifice and follow the will of God, you're going to be rewarded for that. So do that, right? He's, he's telling us that true life is in pursuing the things of God and we will be rewarded. It's like a, a down payment for what's coming, so to speak. And so true life is in pursuing Jesus. This is where true life is. So in this passage, we see that we can be confident that we're not missing out on life when we sacrifice ourselves but that there is actually true life jesus has shown us in his life what true life actually looks like he's shown us that we can follow ourselves and go against god or we can follow the will of god and be used by god and experience true life this is what we not only understand about ourselves, but we understand about Jesus. This is what he came to do. He didn't come to conquer as the king. He came to lay down his life and die. That's the full picture of what Jesus came to do. That's the full picture of what he wanted his disciples to know before they spread the message about him. That he's not just the king who comes into the city riding the white horse. He's the king who comes into the city riding on the donkey to lay down his life for the people. That's the kind of character that Jesus calls us to as well.